Welcome to the EuroCleo podcast, Pastimes, Talking and Teaching History. My name is Andreas Solferge and I am joined today by my colleague Adriana Fuertes. Adriana has been with us for the last six months as a trainee. Welcome to the podcast, Adriana. Thank you, Andreas. In today's episode, we will speak with Felisa Tillis on issues of democracy and history education. This particular episode is part of a larger thematic focus on democracy here at EuroCleo. We are pleased to offer a related webinar series tackling the issue of fake news and propaganda. Please follow us on social media and join EuroCleo as an individual member to stay updated. Our guest today, Felisa Tibbets, is Chair in Human Rights Education at the Department of Law, Economics and Governance at Utrecht University. She's also a lecturer in the International Education Development Programme at the Columbia University Teachers College and UNESCO Chair in Human Rights and Higher Education. Felisa's research interests include peace, human rights and global democratic citizenship education, curriculum policy and reform, critical pedagogy, education and social movements, as well as human rights and higher education transformation. Welcome, Felisa. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, Felisa. So um, as a first point that we wanted to address in this episode um, is that when we talk about democracy, we think of it as a system that includes and permits that all voices are heard. As individual teachers, how should we deal with extreme viewpoints in the classroom? And related to that, how would you see the wider role of history education when responding to violent extremism and radicalization? Well, these are very difficult situations to find oneself in as a teacher in a classroom. And I don't envy any teacher who has to deal with extreme viewpoints. I think, if I may, I'd like to focus specifically on hate speech as an element of your question, because I think that hate speech is a phenomenon that can take place not only in the classroom and in schools, but also our communities on social media and even with leaders. Recently, the United Nations organized a whole conference on how education can address hate speech and I presented at it. So if you don't mind, I'd like to share some of the strategies that I, that I mentioned on that panel. The first strategy is just to, to create awareness among students, teachers, and also parents that hate speech inflicts pain and can lead to a host of psychological problems. A second strategy is to create concurrent policies to combat disinformation and, and bullying, because these go hand in hand. Another strategy is to create reporting mechanisms when hate speech does take place at a variety of levels, also within schools, and to have really clear codes of conduct regarding how views get expressed. We can encourage teachers to work with students on developing campaigns against hate speech in their schools and having students co-create the curriculum and resources. And of course, there's a lot of ways that we can support teachers in classroom practices to address hate speech and people with extreme viewpoints, if you will. First of all, help teachers to understand, recognize what is hate speech and what are its antecedents. Give them trainings related to methodologies for dealing with sensitive issues like discussion techniques, how to handle certain problems like the one you alluded to in your question. Let them practice with it so that they feel a little bit more confident when they're not, so they're not taken by surprise and left 
without a response if they get surprised unpleasantly in the classroom. And help teachers also, you know, give them a chance to, ex to address their own views, their own emotions, their own experiences, because as teachers, they're also people who have maybe been a subject to hate speech or, you know, may have complicated ways of thinking about certain <laughs> issues that, um, that are important for them to recognize so that they can put aside. Of course, we can also support teachers with manuals for all of the above. We can also link the phenomenon of hate speech or extreme viewpoints that are really negative with historical examples. So back to one of the things you asked about, how can history education help? Well, there are historical examples that we can use as a kind of launching pad in our required curriculum for discussing such issues. Like we can look at Nazi Germany, we can look at Islamophobia, we can look and see when and how hate speech or extreme viewpoints have been leveled against minorities. And sometimes that's practical to think of, to look at it historically, use a case study that will allow learners to make connections with what's happening in their own country, but doesn't put the teacher necessarily in a position where they have to put, you know, point the finger right at, you know, what's happening right there in the community, but those links can be made. So not easy, not easy at all for, for teachers, but we really, um, I think teachers deserve support in this area. And there's absolutely, like I mentioned, many strategies that I think can be undertaken to support them and to help them in addressing these, you know, these difficult situations. So, um... Not not to put you too much on the spot, uh, Felisa, but but this is a concrete example that we we hear, for instance, here in in the Netherlands. But I think it's also common that you would find that in 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 Western Europe, in the U.S., that you perhaps have a student who say expresses very uh, a difficult viewpoint towards migrants, for instance. How how sort of concretely would you recommend that a teacher kind of responds to this? Like, is it on the one hand, uh, I think there could be a danger in just sort of rejecting any any statement. So so how how do you make sure that this, the the student sort of feels uh, yeah feels heard in a way or or feels yeah feels heard but without uh, legitimizing this kind of viewpoint? A teacher wouldn't want to you know, humiliate the student, if you will, call them out. If this is one student in a classroom, I think many teachers would naturally, well, there's a choice a teacher has. First is to just not say anything, right? Let it pass. The path of least resistance would be something like that, right? Just to not, just to not, to not address it, not to make it a point of discussion, but perhaps you know, find a time to speak with the student outside of the classroom to find out more about where that point of view is coming from. Again, not to, you know, corner them per se, but to really un try to understand what's going on with the student, especially if, if the teacher suspects that that viewpoint is related to other, I don't know, what, what else it could be related to, but just try to understand the student. But a teacher could also use it as a learning moment, you know, in the classroom. And I, I'm not sure how a teacher might decide that, right? It, it depends on the, the context that the, the viewpoint comes up. And it also depends, I think, on the teacher's understanding of the classroom, because my instinct would be to create an environment where other students can express a point of view. So rather than the teacher being the, the individual who's challenging that student and their viewpoint, to create a space where other students can respond and it then becomes a classroom discussion 
So simply that would be another strategy to use. But I think um, another way that the teacher can anticipate can address this particular circumstance, there's no perfect solution, of course, is to already have in mind the role they would play with any sensitive issue or extreme point of view, which is, for example, teachers can foresee that their role would be just to ensure that all points of view are expressed in the class. So if it's an extreme point of view that comes out that other points of view are expressed and that the, the students have a, a kind of deliberation around that. Um, the teacher can also decide that they will express a point of view if it's not being expressed by other students in the class. For example, you know, a response to an extreme point of view, a viewpoint, if no other students have the courage or don't, it doesn't occur to them to, to challenge the viewpoints of one of their classmates, the teacher might present a sort of as a devil's advocate that point of view, not necessarily claiming it as their own, but more to ensure that all points of view are, are heard. And finally, a so a teacher might decide that, that that's the kind of role they wanna play in general the devil's advocate role if some such a view comes up and if they do decide they want it discussed in the class rather than to deal with the student privately, right? But there's another, uh, in a, another variation on that is that the teacher at the end of this discussion, let's say amongst the students expresses her or his own point of view and to explain why they have that point of view, why they would not support a particular extreme point of view. and. And to, and to base that on, on, on evidence that they might be able to pull up around the negative ramifications of these points of view, especially when they become uh, politicized and the ramifications for minorities, the importance of non-discrimination, the importance of not harming others, you know, human rights and the respect for other people's human dignity as being the basis of our living together. So I think that a teacher could also comfortably come in at the end with their own points of view um, and all of these are options for teachers, you know, I, and again, I don't think there are perfect solutions um, at all. And it's, uh, it's to some degree dependent on the teacher and their understanding of their classroom. Yeah, it's, it certainly is a very difficult spot to be in and uh, not something we envy. Mo moving to something a bit different, because you have also, you've done some, some research on, on countries that are basically transitioning to democracy. I'm thinking particularly on, on South Africa. You, you have looked into how history education uh, took place there after apartheid. Obviously, the history curriculum in South Africa changed very dramatically uh, with the transition to democracy. But you also, you, you argued in a, in a recent article that you, you have written that this transitional justice uh, process that, that they went through, in quotation mark, forgot about the re-education or the retraining of teachers in that process is that they didn't give them any tools to, yeah, to move on from, from what was previously a quite exclusionary nationalist narrative uh, in the apartheid system. And, and my question is, given the fact that, that these teachers themselves were so, were, were very much part of, of the system, or certainly some would have been, how do you, in very concrete terms, change the mindset of, of teachers that have been teaching in, in one system and are now expected to do something very different? And yeah, I think you, you also have some, some experiences from, from trainings that were, were done in South Africa. And I'm, I'm just curious to learn more about the kinds of techniques and trainings that, that were mm -hmm. 
were offered or should have been offered to these to these teachers in such a situation? Well, <laughs> can we change the mindset of teachers? <laughs> well, well, certainly if we don't recognize that teachers have their own personal experiences in relation to recent histories, if we gloss this over as they did in the South African training for history teachers where they were focusing just on the moving towards outcome-based learning, you know, and, and how to reconfigure lesson plans without dealing with any of the personal histories of the teachers in regards to apartheid. Um, if we don't recognize that, that teachers have their own experiences and that can influence how they teach, then their choices will, in the classroom, can become part of the hidden curriculum, right? So even with a new national cur curriculum promoting multi-perspectivity in history, right? Or honesty about who was culpable during the apartheid period in the case of South Africa, teachers can make choices to skip lessons, to shorten lessons, to offer an alternative point of view. Um, I know a South African history education researcher who has found there's like a, a really considerable difference uh, a discrepancy between the human rights education that is being taught in teacher training institutions and what they actually teach once they're in the schools and classrooms because then they become influenced by their peers and the culture of the schools. So back to your question, in the, in the short term, change is very difficult. I mean, for everyone, for, for teachers, for systems, so perhaps all of you can say that it's a faltering process, but it's a more honest one if, in the illustration you gave, the retraining recognizes sensitive and emotional areas for teachers and provides a space for dialogue and honesty. In the teacher training workshops that we mentioned in the article you quoted, it was the first time that teachers coming from different racial backgrounds in South Africa were actually training together. That in and of itself was a transformative experience. So if teacher training institutions allowed for these kinds of encounters, again, bringing together groups that had previously had tensions with one another, even animosity. So even if they brought them together, even only implicitly with the agenda for dialogue, and if the national curriculum incorporates critical reflection on difficult histories, I think these are important steps to take, even if they're imperfect. And then uh, as, a, as a related question to this, we talk a lot about teachers as agents of change. What, what do you read into this? And, and where do you see the, sort of the potential and also the limitations and the challenges for teachers to yeah, really instill certain values, democracy, human rights, peace in, in their classroom and to their students? You know, in my own experience, teachers become so-called agents of change through some very, very simple but powerful practices in the classroom, encouraging critical thinking among their students, not only critical thinking for the students, but students thinking for themselves, exploring issues of their own interests, encouraging dialogue and encouraging students taking action. It's this simple and to model this for the students directly. I recently, I recently completed a study of youth activists in the United States and it came down to some very simple practices, creating spaces in schools for students to explore and express their own voice. Sometimes this happened in the classroom, 
often it did not happen in the classroom. It happened outside the classroom in clubs or experiences outside the school. Or there was that singular teacher who recognized there was a student in their class with burning questions who would take the time to have lunch with the students periodically and just have a discussion about what was on the student's mind politically. It was often despite what was being taught in the classroom, not because of it. And that was a big surprise for me. Teachers influence their students every day by how they teach, how they treat their students, modeling certain values. It's a bone of contention about whether or not and how teachers should try to influence the values and attitudes of their learners, right? The UN draws our attention to the values you mentioned, democracy, human rights, and peace, and others that are human rights-based, like equality, non-discrimination, peaceful coexistence. And in some countries, education laws and national curriculum frameworks also highlight these values. Yet there can be some discomfort, and this gets to the limitation problem, right, that you asked me about. There can be some discomfort with teachers promoting values that, are, that they don't consider to be politically neutral. And what do I mean by this? Politically neutral, human rights. I'm a person who spent a lot of time working in, in the human rights field and in education and training in human rights. And it's still a constant struggle in some countries for human rights to be seen as politically neutral and not associated with any particular political party. Mm. And if human rights, which is you know, one of the bedrock values of the United Nations and is mentioned in many of our country's constitutions, when brought to the classroom, seen as a potentially politicizing students in ways that teachers don't feel comfortable with, then I think this question of values in the schools takes on um, a problematic nature, right? For some teachers anyway. The counterexample, of course, is the socialization of young children that's carried out quite regularly and normally in preschool and primary school, you know, encouraging cooperation, fair play, politeness, cleanliness, and so on. You know, there's not usually any reluctance to teach these values. And you might actually consider these as, as foundational, by the way, for peace, some, some people do. Um, even encouraging the values of participation in young children and youth might be seen as foundational to democratic practices, both in the classroom and in society. But again, when these values are linked with politics or power structures or challenging social issues that seem to fall outside the so-called neutral national curriculum, not that national curriculum is ever value neutral, we know that, this can become problematic in some societies, not necessarily all of them, but some. So it's indeed a dilemma, which values, whose values, how, for what purpose. And I don't think it's resolved in our national curriculums, um, nor for, for teachers, I think, to their full, um, to their full satisfaction. Felisa, you mentioned a lot of uh, creating spaces and encouraging students to take action. But do you have any concrete tip or any concrete idea that teachers can employ for this purpose for engage students to become more active in their democratic rights as voting? Well, I mean, those of us working in education for democratic citizenship like EuroCleo um, and, and many other organizations have um, 
when working long and hard, right, to give teachers suggestions for how to do this. For me as well, in the human rights education um, curriculum that I've worked on in the trainings, it's all we all always want it to lead to action in some way. Although I, I would like to, to mention that the notion of, of transformation and activation, I think, has a has a private as well as a public dimension. The private dimensions. Um, which I think are really valuable, is that sense of wanting to make a difference, leaving students with a motivation to make a difference, with maybe leaving them also with a commitment to being what they call an upstander, right? When something threatening, say human rights or someone threatening another classmate or person outside in the community, they, they're not gonna stand by and be passively just watching and not try to, to influence it in some way. So I think that that is a valuable residue of some of the focus we have on encouraging our, our students to make a positive difference in the world, right? So I don't, wanna, I don't wanna discount that. And I mention that because I know in my own working with teacher teachers um, in my own teacher training institution, prospective teachers, some of my students are really keen on, you know, the values of peace, the values of human rights, but they don't see themselves as people that will go and march on the streets. And it's been really important for me to, to really reassure them that there are so, so many ways we can be actively engaged in working for a better world, right? Supporting democracy that doesn't require us to go on the streets and march. Some of you might want to do that, but you don't have to do that. <laughs> so I think that's important. So, but on the so that brings us to the public domain. And of course, yes, you know, education for democratic citizenship. We have very traditional forms of engagement that schools are typically encouraging students to do, like to vote, to be active in their community. There's actually um, many theorists in the field of civic education. I'm very fond of Westheimer and Kahn, and they dis distinguish between traditional forms of citizenship, like the kind you just you alluded to in your question, uh, participatory form forms of citizenship, which encourages all of us to be active in our community, like volunteerism in our community. That could be volunteerism in our with our local governments, with civil society organizations, including any religious community we might belong to. And then there's the justice related citizen who might encompass all those other kinds of, 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 of forms of citizenship, but who actually engages in social transformation, the idea to improve society. So it moves from traditional forms of participation to you know, community engagement to transformation transformational kinds of engagement. And that links up a lot, the latter, of course, with the kinds of work I do in human rights education. But I think education for democratic citizenship incorporates traditionally, the, again, the, the standard ways of, of engagement through voting plus maybe engagement in your community. But I wanna mention, because I know that EuroCLEO's members are not only, in, they're primarily in Europe, but not only in Europe. I wanna mention this, that I worked recently a couple of years ago on a on a policy guidelines and also some curriculum with UNESCO on global citizenship education and the rule of law because UNESCO has a partnership with uh, I guess it's UNODC it's the UN organization to combat crime and it 
really was a very interesting learning experience for me because it made me sort of sort of think out of the box in terms of of democracy, right? I, I've worked so much with in countries that are emerging democracies or well-established democracies. So it's kind of a given that we, you know, we focus on citizenship education and we, we try to make, you know, we try to activate and, you know, all the things <laughs> you asked about and you're thinking about it, I just touched on a little bit. But not all countries have strong rule of law. And, yeah. and it's, I you know there are countries where there's corruption even at the school and the classroom level where you know there's a lack of, of of faith in politicians and the voting process itself so i just want to recognize that there's sometimes a much much larger agenda for societies that have to do with trying to promote good governance and the rule of law and then the question about what can be happening in schools can look a little bit different i would say and and it also raises questions about what would be relevant for students and also safe for teachers to, to address in, in the classroom. So I just wanna put that out there because not, not everyone is teaching in a, in, a, in a society where democracy is understood and accepted and practiced well. The title of our, of our um, uh, webinar series has been the fragility of democracy. And I, not only is it, yeah, of course, in certain countries you, you have maybe uh, democracy in, in theory, in practice, it's not always um, as well practiced. You mentioned the, the corruption, even in the classroom and, and so forth. But it is, I think it's also a, a fact that we are seeing uh, some serious challenges um, appearing in yeah, nominally uh, democratic societies that are now yeah, threatening to some extent also um, our ed educational systems. Um, we had a, a previous episode on, on this podcast. We spoke with an educator in, in Brazil uh, where they have yeah, quite some, some challenges now uh, with regard to the, the regime of, of Jair Bolsonaro, who is threatening the curriculum. And uh, yeah, um, there is, there is a, a serious harm uh, going on as well. So we are, we are indeed in a, in a, in a place where democracy is to some, some extent under threat uh, as well. So just as a final question to you, uh, we've talked about the, the transition to democracy in South Africa. We, we talked about countries that where yeah, democracy is not very strong, um, but now we're also seeing um, elements in, in Europe, in, in the US, uh, where you are based as well. And uh, we saw the, the events in, in uh, Washington uh, early uh, last year. As, as teachers in a, in a history classroom, how, how should we respond to these kind of events and, and make sure that students are, are also understand that, that democracy cannot be taken for granted. It's also fragile. It's, it's even in, in, in countries that have a long tradition of, his, uh, of, of democracy, we, we, we are seeing threats towards it. Well, I think you've answered your own question. <laughs> and I agree, I agree, you, 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 you discussed this, right? We can look at historical examples. I, I, I know it's been a shock and, uh, and it, for so many of us in the United States, the events of January 6th and many curriculum writers rose to the occasion uh, to come up with very quick prompts for teachers to use in classrooms to use it as a learning moment to discuss democracy, 
to discuss processes of, of, of protest, to discuss uh, the acceptability or unacceptability of the use of violence. You know, we now, as a continuation, we still, you know, this issue of January 6th and what happened and who's culpable is now on Capitol Hill being discussed in Congress. So the continuation of this discussion on that incident in the United States is, you know, again, you know, it's, it's now reached, you know, it's their hearings being held, right? And it could also take some individuals to court. I believe that's the next step. So it leads us to our institutions and democracy, right? The courts and also our, um, our legislative branch. Um, so I, I, I think we, it kind of goes back to the first question you asked me, you know, we as teachers need to take the moments of an extreme view in our classroom or an event like January 6th in the United States or in the UK a few days ago, a prime minister, you know, a, 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 um, a parliamentarian being killed. Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, we have challenges to democratic processes all the time. And I, I, I know there's so many examples you have in the back of your mind, mine as well, where schools are, and national curriculum are being changed to accommodate, you know, um, undemocratic impulses in, in countries. I mean, I, we, we, there's numerous ones we can mention. And I, I don't know how those teachers are coping with it. In my context in the States, as I said, we can, you know, we can bring out these issues. We can use them like January 6th as learning moments for teachers who are you know, embedded in systems where they are obligated to use the national curriculum. I think they have to make very difficult choices about, about how they, if they want to, can disrupt, disrupt the new national dialogue or, or the nationalism um, that is is being pushed through in the curriculum. I, I spoke recently with uh, a student of mine, a graduate student of mine who was in Hong Kong during the protest. She's not herself from Hong Kong. And, and she was on the streets, so she was teaching in Hong Kong. She was on the streets. She was marching a few years ago when Hong Kong happened. And she's still in touch with, with many of her colleagues who are teachers. And that that national curriculum is being changed a lot. The whole civics education curriculum mm -hmm. is being reformed in ways that you can probably imagine and teachers are quitting. That's one of the choices they had and that's what teachers can do, they can quit. Um, but when I was doing research in Central and Eastern Europe immediately after the Berlin Wall came down, I asked teachers what they were doing during the previous period. And teachers had different, you know, some teachers were not loyal communists, you know, they have the official curriculum, but they did other things very unofficially. It just depended who the teachers were. Of course, not everyone did, but they had strategies. They had un unofficial classes. Um, they, they, they found ways to, to work outside of the curriculum. They had to be careful because, you know, in some systems that are not democratic or are moving away from a democratic impulse, there are hazards, right? The, and during the communist period of some of these countries, there were inspectors that came in to make sure that the party line was being followed. Um, students 
sometimes could report teachers to headmaster. I mean, there was very draconian systems in place really to make sure people were marching in such a certain way. So I don't know, again, it depends on the environment that a teacher is teaching in, but, but teachers nevertheless can and do find ways to, to, to disrupt anti-democratic narratives in, in contexts like the, the ones maybe that you're thinking of where you know, it's really, you know, moving away from, from democracy, but teachers have to be, you know, they have to be safe. They shouldn't have, to, they shouldn't put their jobs, right, and themselves on the line. They shouldn't in any way also endanger their students. So, you know, um, so that also needs to always be taken into consideration, right, to keep, to, 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 to keep every, to keep everyone safe. And so if, if that kind of discussions can't happen in schools, then they, they need to happen outside of schools. And, and I, I assume that they will. Thank you so much, Felisa, for sharing your, your thoughts and, and uh, um, research and, and all the thinking you have done on, on these topics with us. So thank you very much.